The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. I, I definitely expect a no, any novel to be boring at parts. Mm-hmm. I never forgive a short story. If it's boring. Yeah. Like, I get furious. <laughs> and I, I've started so many New Yorker short stories and just thought, who's this guy? What's this scene? What's this scene about? You know, and here I am reading like Bolano's 2666 and there's like the 37th description of a mutilated, mutilated body. <laughs> and I'm like, well, this mutilated body was described differently. <laughs> Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the history of literature. That clip was our old friend, Mike, the president of the Literature Supporters Club. Mike joins me today for a discussion of short stories and novels. What can short stories do that novels can't? What do we expect from short stories, and how does that affect our experience as readers? And what, in this era of Twitter and Facebook and blogs, all these avenues for humor and insight and narrative and anecdotes, what sets a short story apart? Can a short story ever be too short? We'll look at Alice Munro and Jorge Luis Borges and Raymond Carver and Edgar Allan Poe and Donald Barthelme to help us explore the length of fiction. And Lydia Davis, well, Ms. Davis kind of runs away with the episode, as you'll hear, but that's okay with me. She can run away with the whole podcast if she wants. Run away, settle down, and live happily ever after. All about short stories, and long ones too, today on The History of Literature. Okay, I'm joined now by Mike, the president of the Literature Supporters Club. Mike, welcome back to the show. Hey, Jack. Thanks for having me. Okay, so we're talking about the length of fiction, short stories and novels. What's on your mind? Well, I, it's a question that nags at me whenever I'm reading whether this story should be longer or th this novel could be shorter. Or hmm. I can't help but analogizing it to movies. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I don't know if people have read Sid Field's seminal work screenplay, but that kind of breaks down how formulaic film is and how basically scripts, the way script writing works is that every page represents a minute. And so a hundred, a, a two hour movie is 120 pages. And so by page 25, you know, Sid Field recommends that the first plot point must occur. And mm. so there are all these like milestones as mm -hmm. to where. And there's when like things... a reversal and then there's, yeah, the climax and he's got it all charted out. Right. And uh, although, you know, good fiction isn't formulaic like that, it does beg the question, you know, like when do you need to introduce the conflict? Mm. And when should there be, when should you stop introducing new characters? Like in Magic Mountain, one of the most important characters is this guy, Nafta, this philosopher, and he shows up on page 500. Right. <laughs> and, right. 
So I could see where novels would draw that parallel, but short stories seems like it would be sort of uh, anything goes. Yeah. Short story, it's an interesting evolution of the short story. I think a lot of people used to think of the short story as sort of like um, a proven ground where you could practice chopping wood and before you built the house. Mm -hmm. And so people would really recommend to young writers, like, try your hand at writing a short story, write a, write a series of short stories before you try to embark on the novel. And then it, it evolved nicely into how a short story could do something that a novel couldn't do. Mm -hmm. And so I... I wanted to to read to you a couple of short stories that I just think of could never be novels. Okay, so the first one is by the short story writer Lydia Davis, who I was reading a little bit about her. She she did try her hand at writing novels and decided that it was just frustrating her no end. So she started writing short fiction and she started writing shorter and shorter fiction and she ended up writing stuff like this so okay. this story is called the mother uh, the girl wrote a story but how much better it would be if you wrote a novel said her mother the girl built a dollhouse but how much better if it were a real house her mother said the girl made a small pillow for her father but wouldn't a quilt be more practical said her mother the girl dug a small hole in the garden. But how much better if you dug a large hole, said the mother. The girl dug a large hole and went to sleep in it. But how much better if you slept forever, said the mother. That's it? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other one is... is Yikes. Uh, <laughs> the, the other one is uh, I, I want to read the other one too before we discuss that first one because I feel like it, the two are related okay. the other one is called Spring Spleen and it goes, it's two sentences it goes I am happy the leaves are growing large so quickly soon they will hide the neighbor and her screaming child that's it <laughs> So, I don't know if listeners are familiar with Lydia Davis, but, you yes. know. So, the interesting thing about Lydia Davis, I mean, there's endlessly interesting things about Lydia Davis, I suppose, but she's also known as the translator of Proust and oh my gosh, of that, Lost Time. So right. One of the longest books ever. <laughs> yeah. So, you sort of imagine her uh, spending a morning, you know, slogging away. <laughs> Translating, I mean, Proust, I actually looked this up because I was kind of fascinated. So, in Proust, the longest sentence in Proust's novel is 944 words. Wow. And I know that Lydia Davis has a couple hundred stories in her collected stories, and I'm guessing that there are more than a handful that are shorter than 944 words. So, you know, with, with that kind of length, I think you can kind of jab people in a mm -hmm. way that it's it's almost like when you're struck in the nose by a ball when you're a kid and you see stars. You literally do see stars. You can't get that reading, you know, David Copperfield. I love David Copperfield. But right. you don't you don't get that kind of you know, you read that story and you just close it and you you don't want to read another story for a little while. You wanna let it kind of sink in. Mm-hmm. You mean the uh, Lydia Davis's story? Yeah, the Lydia Davis. And right. I, I think it's, there's something very human about being impatient. Mm -hmm. And 
her stories force you to, I don't know, be more aware of it. Right. I remember when her collective stories came out and it's a, a fairly large book. Yeah. Uh, like I said, it's a couple hundred stories or something. And a lot of people are saying, just read one a night, you know, keep it on your bed, bedside table. Uh, but don't, don't try to read them all straight through because the impact is going to be, I guess it would be like being punched in the nose 200 times. <laughs> Space it out. <laughs> and with short uh, fiction, what you can do is you can get away with certain things mm -hmm. like repetition mm. like she has a short story called um basically like the ex-husband is calling and so it's told from the perspective of this woman whose ex-husband calls her and she thinks initially that it's her brother and she really dislikes her brother and then she realizes it's the ex-husband and the ex-husband reminds her of her husband and there's this great repetition of the phrase, like, ex-husband, the ex-husband. And it's only a, a page-long story, and I think you can get away with that. And it also has, like, a real impact because it's such a short story. Mm -hmm. Right. And it it gives you a kind of, um, I don't want to say droning. I'm, I'm struggling for the word, but it, it, it gives you, it's like an intensifier. Yeah, it's like it, it, it's like an incantation almost. Right. Yeah, it's like a spell that you know you feel like okay, I'm, I'm just going with it because I only have to go with it for three pages. On the other, on the flip side, you have David Copperfield, the example you gave, and and plenty of other examples of novels where you just fall into the sofa. You <laughs> you take the book, you want to, you know, you're going to devote some time to it. You get absorbed. You maybe put it down. You pick it back up and jump back into the world but you're basically committing to a kind of long extended read. Maybe you're going to watch characters grow or life happen. But on the other hand, you get writers like uh, David Foster Wallace, and you've read a lot more of him than I have, but didn't he have a book where he was trying to convey the experience of boredom? And so mm -hmm. he intentionally made you know dozens of pages or hundreds of pages boring so that it would convey that his text collector protagonist was was living a kind of mundane, boring life. That's the kind of thing that strikes me as being better suited for a short story, where you're not asking readers to commit to several hours of making that point. That's a good point, because he, he wrote many short stories. Mm -hmm. I love some of his stories, and they, they're all... I think it's... An, it's a natural thing to go for comedy with mm -hmm. a short story because it's almost like stand-up. Um, mm. It's it's very direct and there's an imperative tones. And so he wrote a short story where this um, it's a series of interviews. A series it's a question and answer where you don't get the question, mm -hmm. you just get the answer. So the question part says dot dot dot, and as you can imagine there there's ripe opportunity for humor if you don't get the question but you get this kind of funny answer so one of the interviews is with a guy who whenever he has an orgasm screams victory uh for the allied powers or something <laughs> and because you don't get the question you get lulled into thinking it's a very serious discussion right it's almost like a medical condition and then you get this little twist, 
you know, it could only be done in a short story. I mean, nobody will put up with 80 pages of Q&A where you didn't have the question. <laughs> right. It's interesting that you compared it with stand-up because I actually prepared something that I found really interesting. I found three authors, uh, well, two authors and a stand-up comedian, and they all basically had the same idea. They all uh, <laughs> conveyed it in completely different ways. And it really, for me, uh, draws out the distinction between uh, stand-up, short stories, and novels. The idea is basically, what if you had a map that was uh, the same, was actual size? Hmm. And Stephen Wright made a joke about this. Are you familiar with Stephen Wright? He's the yeah the guy who talked in kind of an effectless voice. I, I won't do his voice, but those of you who know Stephen, I'm sure you can find it on YouTube, but those of you who know Stephen Wright can probably imagine him saying this. And his the joke was, I have a map of the United States. It's actual size. It says scale. One mile equals one mile. I spent last summer folding it. I hardly <laughs> ever unroll it. People ask me where I live and I say E6. I can remember that, actually, seeing that on, I don't know, Letterman or something. And it was very funny. And, he, you know, he paused and he did everything. He delivered it in a much funnier way than I did. It was very effective. But it's basically just a, a one-premise joke. Lewis Carroll, the mm -hmm. author of Alice in Wonderland, had a very similar idea that he put into a novel. And I'll give you the excerpt of it here. What a useful thing a pocket map is, I remarked. That's another thing we've learned from your nation, said Meinherr, map-making. But we've carried it much further than you. What do you consider the largest map that would be really useful? Uh, about six inches to the mile. Only six inches, exclaimed Meinherr. We very soon got to six yards to the mile. Then we tried a hundred yards to the mile. And then came the grandest idea of all. We actually made a map of the country on the scale of a mile to the mile. Have you used it much? I inquired. It has never been spread out yet, said Meinherr. The farmers objected. They said it would cover the whole country and shut out the sunlight. So we now use the country itself as its own map, and I assure you, it does nearly as well. So that is from a longer book. And what I think you get out of that is you get two characters, you get an exchange, you get some... Uh, you know, it kind of reveals some of their personality, but essentially you're still in the same, it's kind of a one premise joke. And now you're just seeing that how it would be if, if Stephen Wright had someone else on stage with him commenting and being kind of the straight man for, for how goofy it was. Then the last one is a short story. And this is by uh, Jorge Luis Borges. He took the same premise and he turned it into a short story. And I thought maybe we could talk about this because it really seems to serve. Uh, this is the entire story that I'm going to read. And we can talk about what separates short stories. What would make it more than like a tweet, for example, or more than just a, a blog post or just a thought? What turns this into a short story? So here's Borges. In that empire... The art of cartography attained such perfection that the map of a single province occupied the entirety of a city, and the map of the empire, the entirety of a province. 
In time, those unconscionable maps no longer satisfied, and the cartographer's guilds struck a map of the Empire, whose size was that of the Empire, and which coincided point for point with it. The following generations, who were not so fond of the study of cartography as their forebears had been, saw that that vast map was useless, and not without some pitilessness was it that they delivered it up to the inclemencies of sun and winters. In the deserts of the West, still today, there are tattered ruins of that map, inhabited by animals and beggars. In all the land, there is no other relic of the disciplines of geography. That's great. I've I've never heard that one. There's been a lot of commentary on it as, you know, for the way it collapses time. And and I think there have been a lot of critics and philosophers who have kind of taken this up and, and talked about the way time and space are are used in this. And certainly it's got those elements, which makes it a little more uh, richer or a little more deeper or thought provoking than just the Stephen Wright joke. Although there's plenty to explore just in the Stephen Wright joke too. It it does make you think about a lot of things, but where Stephen Wright goes for the, the easy joke of, you know, it would be really hard to fold this map up. Mm-hmm. Borges kind of gives you this sense of these generations and what yeah. we lose when disciplines are valued by by one group of of thinkers at one time and then the you know the the sands of time shift and a new wave of caretakers of culture take over what they what they choose to be interested in and what they leave behind and and how all of it has a kind of permanence and an impermanence to it and all of that comes out in the the Borges that seems to really elevate this single concept to art. Yeah, I mean the the, the generational thing, I think that shows you how almost easily you can create depth to mm-hmm. a story. And I think of that when I read short fiction is you don't I love David Foster Wallace, but you you know, do you need an eighty five page conversation during an IRS happy hour mm-hmm. when you could just read 10 pages of Carver or, you know, two pages of Lydia Davis. And yeah, I mean, I like the, the Stephen Wright E6. I think that's a little touch of genius there. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the more fiction you read, the more demanding you are when something drags or you feel like you can see around the corner what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. And then when there's that little twist, the description of like the maps touching each other or something, that's so nice. In the Lydia Davis story, you have the formula, which is the the girl is doing stuff and the mother is criticizing her. It's almost like relaxing because the girl knows the mother is going to say something. Mm-hmm. But then it's not relaxing because the girl is, you know, going to die. Right. And the mother still won't relent. Yeah. That's a story that's taking you on a little journey and then giving you that element of surprise. It does work like a a well-formed joke. It's a yeah. it's a dark kind of joke, but you know, there are dark comics who would have similar reversals that catch you off guard. I mean, Sarah Silverman, that's basically her comedy. Right. Yeah, I mean, Borges, the thing with Borges that I love is that I feel like he's always on the verge being ridiculous mm-hmm. and then you just kind of buy it then you don't have to buy it anymore because it's so good yeah he would be 
an easy person to it's tempting to to want to write a parody of Borges because yeah. you know you'd have the labyrinths and the libraries and you could really cram it full of all of his private obsessions and and the things uh that he returns to again and again in his stories but i'm with you i'm always i'm always dragged in and uh i always love it when i'm there he he never wrote a work of fiction longer than 14 pages <laughs> and he he said it is a laborious madness and an impoverishing one the madness of composing vast books setting out in 500 pages an idea that can be perfectly related orally in five minutes <laughs> you know it, it is something really to aspire to i think alice monroe found sort of a, uh, a similar thing even though she's written a, a few novels she found that what really excited her and where she was best was building a novelistic world and doing it in the in the length of a short story she was probably at the height I think the pendulum has swung in, um, in the maximalist, as Franzen calls it. That's in vogue today, you know, the Elena Ferrante novels and the Nauscard novels. And, you know, even more recently, like big first books like City on Fire and House of Leaves. Mm. When I was growing up, the classic New Yorker short story was kind of the best that fiction offered Anne Beattie short stories and Alice Monroe, I'd group that together. John Cheever, probably the, the tail end, but Updike too. And it's interesting to see that shift away from the short story. Mm -hmm. You you kind of wait for it to come back and maybe we're starting to see a little bit of that because on the internet, there are all these like literary journals that publish what they call flash fiction. You know, I wonder how much of this is market driven. I know there were... There were times where the publishing industry, for example, wouldn't touch a novella. That mm, it was right. they could they could publish short stories, a collection of short stories, even though that wasn't really their preferred thing to publish either. But it was accepted that you could have short stories that got authors' names out there because they'd be in magazines, and uh, you know, magazines were publishing a lot of fiction, so you could have a collection of short stories. And you could have a novel and you could justify the, now it would be a $25 purchase price, whatever it was in, in the dollars of, you know, 1975, but that it was hard to justify anything shorter than that, unless the author was an established must read author. Yeah. The novella is a funny, is a funny form. I mean, I, I can't say that I've ever read a novella and thought, wow, that was a perfect one. <laughs> <laughs> I usually have this feeling like, oh, I, I wish it could go on, or why the hell did it drag on right. in that <laughs> in that in that middle section? You know, I wonder though. I wonder if novellas may be poised for a comeback. I know Saul Bellow had this <laughs> this view in the eighties, where he was reading some of his novels, some of his earlier novels, and I think he was probably talking about Augie March and Henderson, the rain King and, and some of those. And he was saying, I just kept thinking, why can't the author just get on with it? <laughs> and he of course had the novella sees the day, which was one of his more popular works. But then he also had a theft and, and all of, I think there were two or three that he came out with in the eighties, but he really did it because 
there was a publisher that wanted to publish smaller paperbacks and it was viewed as, oh, we can put Saul Bellow on the shelves. Like bookstores will, will stock this because he's a Nobel prize winner and we can sell these for a lower amount of money, but people won't feel ripped off because they haven't shelled out the the money for a a huge (laughs) hardcover novel. And it makes me wonder with the internet and with publishing on demand and with Amazon and the distribution and everything changed. You do wonder if writers and artists are just freer to write whatever length the book should actually be rather than what they think readers will expect or what publishers will demand. You know, that that reminds me of, of the flip side. I was reading an interview with Jonathan Franzen, and he was saying how, you know, the last three novels he's written are 500 pages in length, and a buddy of his told him that people love would love to teach his novels, but they're too long. Mm. And that if he simply wrote a novella, all these high schools would teach him and he could donate all this money to bird conservation, (laughs) (laughs) which which is, you know, a big cause of his. Right. Yep. (laughs) Because they, you know, and they were pointing out a good thing, which is it's hard to teach a big book in Mm. high school. It is. Yeah. Or college too. I mean, it's, well, it's hard to talk about it. It's hard to talk about. You could spend a whole class period just talking about plot and just making sure that everybody understands what happens and just talking about the different twists and turns of the plot. And then you may be zeroed in on something on page 65 and the rest of the class might be have skimmed right over that and haven't given that much thought. Yeah, I mean, I guess the, 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 the good thing about short fiction is that because it gets to the point, you, you sort of don't waste time talking about the obvious because the obvious is in your face. Mm-hmm. I, I love Donald Barthelme, and I was going to read a couple of his, uh, a bit of his work on this show. Um, I was reading, rereading this old short story of his called Grandmother's House, and the beginning is just amazing. It, it starts like this. Grandmother's house? What? Landmark status? What? She's been eating? What? Strangers? She's been eating strangers? Sitting up in bed eating strangers? Hey, pale pink strangers? Zoot, lithium. What? They're giving her lithium? Hey, she's a what? Wolf? She's a wolf? Gad, second opinion. Hey, she's a wolf. Well, well, and grandfather? What? Living with a stranger? Hey, Pale pink stranger, abominable. What's her name? What? What? Belle? <laughs> That's the beginning. <laughs> you know, that reminds me a little bit of Borges in the sense that Bartholomé has his own pet obsessions. And in some <laughs> ways, you know, uh, Borges, he never really has characters. He doesn't have scenes. And uh-huh. his stories, they're almost, they're more like concepts and an idea that triggers something. I mean, I think in the Bartholomé, he's probably... It's almost like a far side cartoon where it's you imagine he's thinking, well, what if uh, Little Red Riding Hood, what if that story were we came at it from this angle? Yeah. In knowing that his readers are going to bring to it their own understanding of the story and will take some uh, sort of thrill in recognizing what's happening as it's unfolding. It assumes a lot of prior knowledge about literature, I mm-hmm. think. Um, mm-hmm. especially Borges. Yeah. I, I think if if you don't know 
the way perspectives can shift and how clever that can be. There are little nuances like that. Like Barthelme is so good with point of view and um, nostalgia. Like he loves manipulating nostalgia. This kind of, you know, the feeling that we're all part of a community or we're looking mm-hmm. back at our, on, you know, our moms and dads. And he, he's, he's very aware and he wants the reader to kind of fall into the, the trap of thinking they're aware too. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I just love that about, you know, short fiction that I think again can't be done with longer fiction. What do you think? Let's, let's talk about fiction and whether it can be too short. This is often cited as the shortest best story ever written. It's a Hemingway story, and it's become kind of an internet meme, I think, of can you write a story that's this good in six words? (laughs) And I'll read the story. It is for sale, colon, baby shoes, comma, never worn. (laughs) Uh, Do you consider that a short story? You know, I, I think it's probably harder to do than... It seems, and that <laughs> that that you know makes me appreciate it. Mm-hmm. But I feel like it doesn't hit me the way a fiction fiction should. Not quite long enough. More yeah. like uh, more yeah. like a trick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how. That, there's another one too. It's like a parlor game. Yeah, yeah. Italo Calvino uh, was looking for the perfect short story, the perfect short short story, and he he declared that he had found it. It was a story by Augusto Monteroso, who was a writer in the, the Latin American boom generation. And the story is called The Dinosaur. And the entire story is uh, as follows. When he awoke, the dinosaur was still there. <laughs> <laughs> so again, I'm kind of I'm kind of lumping that in the same category as with the yeah. Hemingway story of it's just kind of not enough for me i i i get it it gives you a vivid image it gives you something to think about and something to imagine but essentially the reader is reading into that what the story is and yeah you know the the story's not giving them that it's coming from the reader imagining what came before and what will come after i like that one more because uh you know the I give them a little, I give him a little more leeway when it's, he's being oblique. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's a kind of a classic move with short fiction is, oh, I don't know how to end this, so I'm just going to make it mysterious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I, sometimes I, I go for it. Sometimes I think like, okay, let me just read the next story. Right. And maybe, and maybe that's, maybe that's part of it is you can read a bunch of these. And so you're almost kind of expected to read a bunch of these. Mm-hmm. You're not supposed to just read one and then walk away. I mean, Lydia Davis has a short story called Almost Over Separate Bedrooms. It's three sentences. And I think it works well because so many of her stories are about busted relationships. Mm-hmm. And then you read this one and you kind of look for the hope in it. And he, okay, so here it is. They have moved into separate bedrooms now. That night, she dreams she is holding him in her arms. He dreams he is having dinner with Ben Johnson. (laughs) (laughs) 
So, so there, I almost feel like you're at a, you know, a photography, photographer exhibit, you know, I, I just saw the yeah. Danny Lyons exhibit at the new Whitney and, you know, Danny Lyons was a photographer, took some of the seminal photo photographs of the South and the uh, early civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. And you see all these photographs in a row and you can appreciate the beauty and, you know, the history. But then after a while, you sort of reach your fill. Mm -hmm. And you can't right. feel anything anymore. Yeah. And you, you start to, and this is one of the problems I have with a lot of novels, is you start to think more about the author writing it than you do about whatever is going on in the novel. And with the short stories, if you read too many of them by the same author and you start to see the author's tricks and you yeah. see the, the shifts they make and, and maybe what they're trying to do in one and then maybe the cleverness starts to take on a heavier weight and it kind of detracts from the experience of the of a single short story so so maybe the calvino one if you read that with say three more of his mm -hmm. it would resonate the way that i described lydia davis you know, having read her earlier relationship stories, and then you get hit with this almost separate bedroom little story. And, you know, the book of Lydia Davis's that I I really was affected by, I would say that I love it, but I haven't read it for so long, but I mm -hmm. think I read it two or three times, is it's called The End of the Story. And it's basically her, it's this uh, very honest discussion of this affair that she had or kind of an obsession she had with a man who was much younger than her. Hmm. And then it's also combined with a discussion of her trying to write a novel and trying to write about that experience as a novel and the struggles that she was having with it. And I think I've always read, I read that, that was the first thing of hers that I read. And I've always read her short stories through that prism of a person who had come to the short story not with uh, confidence or a kind of, uh, I don't know, of an ease, but somebody who had come to it almost out of desperation and, and artistic panic. Yeah, you, you, you wonder if she, how long she spent on some of these, because I think it's almost just better left, you know, raw or the way it comes out initially that is interesting what the author was going through when they were writing because it kind of brings to mind the the edgar Allan poe uh essay where he's talking about short stories and he's he's giving them a, a place of precedence over novels and he's he said that he he doesn't give an ideal length in terms of word count or pages but he says uh, ideally the fiction will be something that the reader can read in a single sit in a single sitting mm. and he talks about how you create a mood and you don't want the mood to be broken and you have to count on the reader picking up the book and reading what you've given them and then setting the book down and with a novel you don't know when the reader's going to take breaks you just know that they will take them at some point, but it could be on page five or it could be on page 200, and that's kind of the deal. And it's a very interesting uh, look at fiction. It kind of begs the question of, well, what mood are you trying to get? I mean, it works very well for Edgar Allan Poe, who's trying to instill a, an effect of shock or horror, but what if your effect is something different? 
I don't, I don't mean the David Foster Wallace. What if you're affected, you're trying to achieve his boredom, but what if it's, you know, to have someone experience uh, the passage of time or the generations passing or family relationships as they interact and as children are born and, and people marry and divorce. And it almost seems like you'd have to concede that a novel might be a better form for a reader to be picking that up and putting it down almost as if you would be following this family in something like real time. Yeah, you, I think you definitely, I, I definitely expect the novel, a no, any novel to be boring at parts. Mm-hmm. I never forgive a short story that That's way. boring. Yeah. Yeah. Like I get <laughs> furious and I, I've started so many New Yorker short stories and just thought, who's this guy? <laughs> like, what's the scene? What's the scene about? And, right. You know, and here I am reading like, Bolanos 2666 and there's like the 37th description of a mutilated <laughs> mutilated body and I'm like well this mutilated body was described differently <laughs> but the the interesting thing about the Poe and and the idea that it should be the amount of time it takes for the reader to get through it in one sitting it makes you wonder if how long it takes the writer to write. And this is why your comment about Lydia Davis put this in my mind. It's a little strange to think that Lydia Davis might have a story that's, you know, 50 words long, but mm -hmm. maybe spent three months on it. You know, maybe she, <laughs> maybe she wrote it and then put it away for a while and then went back and revised it. And then she thought about it again. And, and it's almost like she's, she's looking at it then with a critical eye rather than an intense, feeling that you might get if you sat down and wrote it in one burst yeah i mean i she she has different modes i i know that you know some of the stories are just just clever mm -hmm. and some of the stories are clever and sad and some of the stories are very angry um <laughs> you know and i actually the, the paris review has a great interview with her where she talks about the, the interviewer, I think, was trying to get her to talk about her mother, and she just refused. Mm. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, you know, that, what the writer is thinking when they set out to write a very short work, I feel like it's very dangerous. You know, that they're taking a lot of risk writing short work, that you can hide in a novel the way you can't in a short story. Mm. You know, I haven't read John Cheever's novels falconer or any any of his other mm -hmm. novels but his short stories are so tight you know the sorrows of Jin and goodbye my brother i i can't help thinking he spent years on them right they're so perfect yeah and then on the on the flip side you get you know a writer like uh george simenon who wrote the magre books and other novels as well and and he would write 80 pages in a day and he <laughs> when he was writing a Magre book That's he would crazy yeah, he would write 80 pages and then vomit that was it <laughs> that was his routine <laughs> but he he would write novels where he would write he would take eight days and he would write eight chapters and then he would wow pause for 10 days and then he would spend three days revising wow 
and that was enough for him to complete one of his Magre novels. And he he viewed those as just money makers. And he said, I'll manufacture Fords for a while until enough money comes in, then I'll make Rolls Royces for pleasure. <laughs> but I, I think it was also it was more than just that he, he wanted to make a lot of money and this was a way to produce a lot of product. I think he also viewed it as, you know, he was gonna inhabit the mind of Magre and what Magre knew and the mystery would be unfolding to Simenon just as it was unfolding to Magre. And if he departed mm-hmm. from that and if he spent, you know, if he put it down and picked it up six months later, he would lose the the kind of mindset and, and focus of what his detective needed to have in mind in order for the plot to work. You know, I used to think that you the best thing is a work that can withstand being put down all the time, which is just... <laughs> That's like the opposite of what everybody... Everybody says it's the best work is one that you can't put down. Right. It's so it's so perverse that, you know, <laughs> like I, I would like metamorphosis. That you could put down all the time and pick it up. You know, same thing with like Brothers Karamazov. But then I've been reading recently um, uh, Alberto Moravia's short stories, Roman Tales. And they're fairly short portraits of different classes of people in Rome, the working class and the rich and, and different jobs. I love the, his, the variety of jobs, the uh, livery driver and um, a real estate broker. And I think I get so much out of them just reading them in one sitting. Mm. And if I walked away, I would feel like I'd, I'd done Moravia a disservice. Mm. You have and, to give it your attention and, yeah. and go where he wants you to go. Yeah. So Edgar Allan Poe, you'd be Edgar Allan Poe's ideal reader. It's interesting, though, that the effect there is not just horror, but something a little more reflective. It's, you know, the economics. It's so funny. It's like, that's what I take away. And I think that's what he was focusing on in these stories about Rome, just the complex economic relationships. Mm-hmm. I've read a lot of David Foster Wallace. You know, Magic Mountain is one of my favorite books. And I tend to read those works over the span of six weeks, mm-hmm. which is pretty long time to live with a book. I think I read that most people spend 10 days to two weeks reading a, a, a work of fiction. Mm-hmm. But again, for a long time, my test was if you can put it down and come back to it, it's a great book. It's like those movies. You know, where you, if you can jump in at any point and start watching from there and enjoy it. Um, you know, speaking of movies, I, I know you had sort of said, suggested that the pendulum was shifting and, and some maximalist fiction and some, some big novels were, were back in vogue. I wonder if that's really true. Maybe that's just you, Mike, because, <laughs> you know, it seems like our attention span is getting shorter and shorter. And I, I looked up at one point the average time in minutes of films, and it's mm-hmm. been just shrinking since the 60s. It had like a, a big, there was a big wave where the top, I think it was a, looked at the top 25 box office films for each year. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a, a time in the 60s when it was over, you know, it was two, close to two and a half hours, but it's just been getting shorter and shorter since then. And I have to say, I have always preferred a 90 minute film to a a 150 minute film. I, I don't feel cheated 
when the movie gets me out of there in an hour and a half. I tend to dislike the movie more when it keeps me there for longer, which is which is strange. You know, I'm paying money to go see it, but right. I still uh, I I get angry, and I I it's like I want a refund if it keeps me there for more than two hours and fifteen minutes. <laughs> I'm laughing because a couple of my favorite films are like four hours long. Uh, you know, the French film, uh, My Sex Life, or How I Got Into an Argument, which is four hours long, and then La Belle Noisise, which is about the act of painting, and which has scenes where an Asian painter paints a naked woman for about 40 minutes. Mm. That So that movie is about five hours long, but they made a U.S. version that was uh, a little over three hours long. It had Let's less... See less painting i think i also like novellas more than you do i like the i like that length where it's it's an in-between length it's the it's the aristotelian golden mean of fiction where it's just enough to give you more than what you would want from a short story but it's not so much that you have to commit to long passages of descriptions of the weather or uh, <laughs> characters that you really don't care about or anything that, that comes in a novel that starts to bog you down. Yeah, I mean, I guess the effect is what matters. And if I, I always think if the movie ends or the book ends and you, you wish that you could see one more scene and just see a little bit more of their life, you know, that, that then you know that the the movie or the book was just long enough. Mm -hmm. If you can imagine a future, like I was thinking of F. Scott Fitzgerald's um, Babylon Revisited, and you, you really do want to see what happens. Will the narrator get his daughter back? Mm -hmm. The story ends in a very you know, logical way, but things in the air, left in the air, and I, I always thought that that story was the perfect way. Again, it's it's nothing you could quantify, but it it fits the it's it's the right length for the story that it's trying to tell. Yeah, I mean, or like uh, Raymond Carver's Cathedral, which has so much backstory to it. It's about this guy who's kind of a drinker and a little bit of a lout, and his wife years ago had a friendship with a blind man. Mm -hmm. They. Um, spent the summer together and then they drifted apart and went to live in different parts of the country and they made each other these tapes. The great thing about that story is you never really learn enough about those tapes and you want to. Okay, that was fun. Didn't I tell you that Lydia Davis ran away with the episode? And don't you want to read her books now? They are a treat. In small doses. Here's what I thought of. A literary nightcap. Every night, you can read one Alice Monroe story. Drink that in. It's like a nice, robust, mellow glass of red wine. And then, follow that up with a little Lydia Davis chaser. A quick shot of... I don't know. Ginger vodka, if you can find such a thing. Wouldn't that be good? Monroe plus Davis. I should open up a literary bar. Jack's Place. Serving up our specialty. The Monroe Davis Concoction. We'll call it a Latini. Hey, speaking of bars, you look a little thirsty. 
thirsty for more History of Literature podcast episodes. Well, good news. There are 56 previous episodes to wet your whistle, and they're all available for free. Just head over to iTunes or Stitcher, or type in History Literature into your podcast app. They'll pop up. Or you can visit us at historyofliterature.com or facebook.com slash historyofliterature. We'll be happy to have you. And make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode in the future. It really helps us out with the landlords. My thanks to Mike, the president of the Literature Supporters Club, for joining me today. And my thanks to all of you listeners for joining me on the journey. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>